0: You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. The only people for me are the mad ones.
1: The world is filled with the boring and the barely conscious.
0: And misery loves company.
1: But we don't have to live this way.
0: Jessica and I are here to talk to those the system rejects, to radicals and thought criminals,
1: The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing but push the boundaries of acceptable discourse.
0: Those who stare reality in the face and dare it to be different.
1: History isn't made by the timid, and fun is not had by the perpetually afraid.
0: We are the Mad Ones.
1: So let's get to it.
0: Welcome to the Mad Ones. I'm your yes-I-like-animal skulls and would love to collect more of them, but no, I am not a serial killer host, Cam Harless, And with me, as always, is your look at all those books behind her. Hostess Miss Jessica Green, how are you doing, Jessica?
1: I'm really good. Um, they're my husband's physics books. I don't know how to read.
0: Well, I mean that. <laughs> there's a very easy joke to be made, right there. Yeah. <laughs> but I am not looking to offend the 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 ladies out there because we have a very mm-hmm. lovely one coming on the show right now. And as a brash, horrible American with a dirty mouth, I want to extend some some politeness. So uh, I'll just go ahead and and introduce Don't
1: strain. Don't strain.
0: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Joining us tonight is the curator of Burials and Beyond. She's a person to go to if you want to talk about life, death, and the weird bits in between, a newly minted PhD in 19th century Gothic literature, and a collector of stories from the odd to the macabre, Miss Kate Cheryl. Hello. How are you doing? (laughs) Thank you. I think it's funny because so someone, uh, as Americans, uh, there are different schools of humor when it comes to to British people. We mm. are not, you know, we love insulting each other. That's just kind of one of the fun things. It's like cousins that are that make fun of each other, the, the Americans in the, in England. And uh, someone had what was it? What was it that they said? I'm already forgetting the point of what I was talking about, and that's not good. Well, Um, what
1: we can relate on is that we both like to make fun of the French and I'm always on board for that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, man, Um, I had a, I had an anecdote and I just screwed it up. So I I guess you have to take over the show, Jessica, because I failed.
1: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do have questions for Kay actually, because this was such a highly anticipated episode and I told all of my friends and family and everyone at my church about it. Only I didn't tell them what Kate properly did because I was thought she was in mortuary studies. She actually studies uh, gothic literature. So I cut my questions down by about half. <laughs> but the first one still applies. And how does such a lovely young girl
2: in the flower of life oh. become interested oh. in death? Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to just record that and keep it as my text tone now. <laughs> um, yeah, I've kind of... Uh, my interest really started with memorialization and cemeteries and kind of I spent a lot of time as a child twice a week being taken around my local cemetery by by my granddad and that sort of grew from that to understanding more about what cemeteries are and then seeing different cemeteries different types of burials and then just a natural sort of flow chart progression and over the years I've kind of just maintained and developed that interest and also when dealing with um family bereavements and things like that getting more involved in the ins and outs of okay what constitutes a contemporary funeral what constitutes a a perceived necessity in death I find endlessly interesting and then I was Mm -hmm. fortunate enough to work in a cemetery um, a few years ago and that really cemented my my ideas of oh this isn't just let's look at some pretty headstones this whole way that we interact with death the you know What's taboo, what's not, what's changing, what's a good change and what's a bad change and who's leading, you know, who's lead, leading these moral crusades. You know, it's it's an endlessly fascinating field. So I'm always learning something new and always bothering some dead people somewhere. <laughs> I'm sure they
1: like to be bothered a little bit. No one's well, probably talking it. to them all that much anymore. So <laughs> um, was there like a seminal moment for you where you were like, where you excuse me excuse my speech where you were like yes this is it this is what i'm going to do for the rest of my life
2: i think uh, to be honest actually i i visited a a cemetery in graz in austria in about 2003 2004 and it was so different to any other burial ground i'd seen in the uk because uh, a lot of austrian cemeteries a lot of german cemeteries as well have a policy of I think it's after however many decades you're in the ground I think it's between 40 and 60 maybe then you have to either renew the the plot payment or it goes to someone else because it's at a premium and they need the income to keep to keep the cemetery looking as beautiful and as crisp and as tended to as it needs to be and sure. it was that that divide because I'm so used to the little rural cemeteries where you know you've got occasionally if you're lucky 17th century headstones and you know, and older ones from in churches and things. That from that to this is all brand new glistening marble, but marble that's been there since the nineteenth century. That was the point when I really thought, okay, all my holiday pictures, first of all, are gonna be of dead Austrians. And then secondly, <laughs> I I need to know everything about this and I need to know about why this happens. Mm. You know, why why do some people get to stay in a grave in perpetuity? And why do others get turfed out or just stacked on top of and I think once you get your, your head around something then before you know it you're researching safety coffins and green burial sites and you know everything in between so I think that was really the point where I thought oh this isn't just as simple as put them in the ground and you're done. Hmm. That's a very hmm. sort of um,
1: taboo idea to exhume someone who's in the ground at least it is here and um, so you're saying they will stack on top of who is previously there, think, they'll add a new person or they I pull think, them out?
2: I think certain cemeteries do, I don't know. I know that in um, North America and, uh, and England especially, disinterment is just a horrific idea for so many people. Yes. But in different, in, in Germany um, and Austria, I think they do disinter and remove them to different graves. I think so, I might be completely wrong. But also in different different European cultures, you do rent, you rent a plot. Mm. you know and when you're decayed then your your bones are removed especially in places like Greece there's mm. bodies decay differently in different climates so it's far easier to repeat this process so I see. It, there's a there's a big cultural element to it I think yeah. whereas we just think no no they're in the ground leave them whereas you have yeah. to think well how many people are they going to be in this particular area because yeah. you you just can't keep Adding more and more space. I mean, granted, more people are, are getting cremated nowadays, but okay. there's still, you know, a large population that wants to be buried. So it does make sense, but it's a real uh, divisive topic, definitely. But yeah, I think the Germans <clears throat> and Austrians have got it. They've got a good point.
1: That's hmm. fascinating. I I have that thought almost daily. I have a very tiny little church in my town, and um, the cemetery outside of it seems full. And there's obviously parishioners still going to the church, and I thought, well, where are you guys going to go? It mm. doesn't appear to be any room here. <laughs> so that's yeah. actually very interesting. And and you're right, more people are cremated nowadays, so it's it's a little bit you have other options. But yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't know that they did that. Now Ooh. I will be doing a Google <laughs> deep dive.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think with the with the issue with like crowded churchyards, particularly mm-hmm. burial spaces directly attached to churches that's been overcrowding has been a massive problem since um, like the late 18th early 19th century especially in big cities like London so when you see today these enormous really beautiful grand Victorian cemeteries like Highgate Cemetery and Brompton you know the ones that are always rented out for films I think like Sherlock Holmes was filmed in one you know they are the Victorian cemeteries they were constructed because churchyards were just overflowing granted to a right. point where they were noticeably overflowing with bodies,
0: oh. shall we say,
2: when you, there's so many accounts of femurs sticking out and and the smell being so bad in the inner cities that that people thought that there was, there was well there was a miasma theory at the time that people thought that smells such as this were killing the living. Mm-hmm. So what we have today is these really beautiful Victorian garden cemeteries were born from overcrowding mm-hmm. in churchyards and people either not being able to disinter them or remove them, but religiously not really being allowed to. So th- it's kind of a symbiotic relationship overcrowding. And then these beautiful cemeteries that we think that's what it should be. It's a, it's a really interesting sort of duality to death.
0: Yes. Yeah, I, I know that like,
2: the, go ahead.
0: i was just say part of the reason we wanted to talk to you is because death is such a taboo subject and along with that, so is dark humor. So dark humor is give or take. I I would assume having spent the time in the subjects that you have, you probably have some um, appreciation of dark humor. I know that uh, was it last um, year and a half ago, I guess now, um, my dad passed away and if it weren't for dark humor, I wouldn't have made it through the funeral. And uh, part of the reason part of the conversation I think that needs to be had when it comes to death is the practical nature of things. Like most people don't think about death until it's too late. So like my, my dad, I knew what he wanted when he died. He wanted to be cremated. He wanted to be spread at some point. uh, He wanted to be spread off the back of a motorcycle. You know I mean? That's, that was my dad. I knew what he wanted. And so when he passed away, Uh, I had to essentially fight my siblings in one way or another to get them to listen to what he had wanted. And I, I I just was so glad that we had had that conversation so that I was there to help him have that happen. And so it's like, I'm curious um, with how you've looked into these things, how you've studied the uh, what I know kind of what I want to happen. And there are contingencies based on where I am in life, but do you have a preferred way you want to be treated once you've passed? Is there a, a, a favorite?
2: Um, I, I've always wanted to be buried. Mm-hmm. I think I'm the only one in my family for quite a while that's that's maintained that. But that comes from a love of I love cemeteries so much. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I really love them. So <laughs> like, if I'm dead, like, yeah, I want to be a part of that. I'm sorry that it'll cost more money, but you'll have yeah. to get a nice granite headstone you know and you'll have to deal with all those costs but yeah i absolutely want to be buried but that's more just sort of my lasting memorial that i'm sure everyone will visit and mourn at very (laughs) if i ever
0: get across the pond and that happens i will i'll I'll visit you
2: (laughs) thank you thank you I, i want to have a memorial that attracts very dramatic goths from across the country I want my <laughs> memorial to be everyone's Instagram photo <laughs> so, so I should start saving really but um Here, but, go ahead. I, was, I was gonna say but with that that's the memorial thing is is like that's my shtick that's that's what I want but what I want to happen like with my body mm-hmm. after I die I'm quite um I'm not precious over it I would hate to be I don't want anything invasive mm-hmm. um in a sense of preservative invasive yeah. like if, if someone wants my organs if i haven't wrecked them by then because i'm having a good go at it um <laughs> if you know if but if, if it's a case of oh we want to embalm her or we want to do even just the rudimentary things that you do like in in this country embalming isn't really standard it's kind of a, a like an additional that's mainly just yeah. a cultural thing or if people are really into having a an open casket but I certainly wouldn't want any of that. I quite like the idea of just letting my body return to the earth. So I wouldn't want an expensive casket and I wouldn't want um, you know, anything done to me because I will go in the ground and I will rot. So don't just yeah. shove money in a hole, at least put money on the surface where we can yeah. all enjoy it. You
0: know? <laughs> and that's that's you know? why I ask because um, I, when, when my dad passed away, there is like, there's a horrible like death lobby In America Mm -hmm. and so when he passed away my my siblings wanted to view the body I was out of town and I for me I didn't want to view the body and it was purely because by the end of his life he was so he was so skinny and like there was so much I wanted to keep the memory of -hmm. what he looked like in my head Um, but when they told when my siblings wanted to be able to view the body Everyone, the doctors, the funeral homes, everyone said in order to view the body, he has to be embalmed first. Like, they would not let... Like legally? Yeah, apparently it was the le- in, in order to do it legally in Alabama, where we were, um, they had to embalm him before people could view him.
2: And so uh, it you- was
0: like 500-something dollars, and I was like, just don't do it. I mean, you could look at him in the cooler. Like, there's there are ways to do this that I'm, I'm sure we could get around. But in America, in Alabama, there are a lot of um, business and corporate interests that lobby the government for special yes. rights and privileges. And so it's it <clears throat> very angry. Because mm. for me, personally, when I pass, like right now, I don't have a home or land that I own. So I would say probably I would want to be cremated and maybe have a memorial uh, headstone put up or something like that. Mm-hmm. But if I had my own land right now, I would truly want to be planted in wrapped in linen on the tree line with a headstone in my land. That's what I would mm. want. Like that would be the that's my that's my death goal is to be planted mm. in my land someday.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think so- we're moving towards a more natural way of viewing death and not seeing it as um, if so, if we see someone who you know who dies from maybe like a wasting illness or they're just not themselves. I think we're we're moving away from. No, we want to preserve them because there's some indignity mm-hmm. in seeing our loved ones in that state. Whereas, it, it it's not they're gone. That that's just part of their journey. Whereas mm-hmm. I think it's it's really really healthy now. Like with like with green burials and things like that, that we're we're seeing far more. We're seeing beyond the um. Let's make them presentable. It's what they right. would have wanted. When no one wants that. No one wants to, yeah. you know, be be preserved for one last viewing when. Like you say, you've got so many memories, and then you'll, you know, then you, there's so many opportunities to have a more, just an eco burial as well, and feel something that's more you rather than a cookie cutter way of of burying everyone.
0: I really, there was a um, real quick though, before
1: we move on from the um, embalming thing, because I actually do have a question about it. Um, The number one thing when I thought that you were in mortuary studies, um, most of the people from my church wanted to know about the embalming process because they are of the religious belief that you are to return to your natural state, which is to the earth from which you came. And there was an Orthodox church, I wanna say in Washington, that was built a monastery that was building simple pine boxes, um, which are much cheaper than the sort of um, almost car-like uh, metal contraptions mm-hmm. that they try to sell to the bereaved. And they also, for the most part, they don't want to be embalmed. And, although there is a pressure that happens from doctors and from, you know, these different facilities that handle the dead, uh, you, you do have the right to resist that. And yes, okay, maybe you won't be able to have an open viewing and other things like that. Is it the same way, are you finding lobbying interest in England or in the UK that's happening that's saying you must have these processes done to you? or because it's maybe an older country with like, um, you know, death and burial has Mm -hmm. occurred there for much longer. Do you think that preserves the desire to have a more natural burial? And what is it about, you know, our culture? Is it, you know, we don't want to witness the corruption of the body. We fear Mm -hmm. our own corruption of our flesh. And so we wanna, you know, almost like in an ancient Egyptian way, Fill ourselves with chemicals so that we don't rot and um, this poor monastery they were sued by the funeral homes in the area and they uh, were required by law to stop making these simple pine boxes so that the the funeral sellers in the area could continue to make money off of the bereaved yeah what yeah yeah, like um, this was (laughs) a deep concern of most of the people that I talked to when I said, oh, I'm talking to this death expert, do you have any questions? And they were like, do I have to be embalmed? Well, I think like the laws on that are local and regional.
2: Like, what do you think drives that? It's, well, I, I think you've nailed it. It's financial interest, I think. Yeah. The the way, I think because the UK is quite small and because we are primarily a secular, uh, a secular country Mm-hmm. so i think there's there's religious interests i think religious lobbying and um financial lobbying within the death sphere can quite often get really intertwined so people are presented with an idea that if if you're not embalmed that somehow makes them less less pious or you know less less godly in a way so i think it's the way things from what i've researched the way things happen with preparation of the dead in America is primarily just led by financial interest but also so I from what I understand you there's no legal requirement across all US states to be embalmed I think there are only national um laws when it relates to bodies being flown like between states or from different Ah. countries into the states and then I think I think there's a few um guidelines around that where the preservation's sake they they do ask for the body to be embalmed but there's certainly nothing to my knowledge like that in the UK as I say embalming is still offered I think by 90% of funeral homes but the the general trend in the UK seems to be um financially again but pushing green burial options there are so many new um, woodland burial grounds and mm. um like non-religious um ministers, people like that, doing the whole package for people. So there's there's a, a real removal of death in the church and death in business
1: mm-hmm, to an extent. Mm-hmm.
2: So things are offered, but mainly people aren't embalmed and they don't have to be. However, for all of the, the let's say the baddies, the, uh, the sort of people that are, are stopping affordable coffins, which mm-hmm. should be, it's a human right. I think it really is. So for all of that, there's people with a financial interest in quite elaborate funerals and elaborate burial rights there are also people with vested financial interests in green burials and in more simplistic burials and holding yes. uh, a more righteous ground holding the perceived higher ground when really they also have yeah quite hefty career interests it's an excellent um, point yeah so there's there's no so- happy medium at the minute i don't think
1: Do you think, um, because I'm told by a lot of people, and I don't know if they know what they're talking about or not when they say this, but they say, well, the reason you have to be embalmed is because when you rot, your body can pollute the groundwater wherever you're being buried at. And I thought, okay, but like we have, you know, cemeteries, have had cemeteries for a long time. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, I know like in India, for example, when they would have um, mass burials near river systems, it would pollute the water and there would be problems with cholera just in the river river, right right. and so Mm -hmm. that's like direct a decaying newly decaying body Mm -hmm. in the water straight up but is there any truth to this idea that if you're placed six feet under the ground that you will somehow corrupt the natural environment around you as you return to the earth if you're not embalmed was that what they saying if you're not if you're not embalmed that you will uh, present a pollutant
2: No, no, that's good. <laughs> well, I mean, utter rubbish. The,
0: rubbish. The, it's,
2: it's a natural the amount
0: of chemicals yeah. that they put in people. You would think that that is what would be it's, dangerous to groundwater. Oh, sure. Exactly. But
2: if you're it, if you're not if you're not embalmed, you're fine. You're hardly going to be a, a big pollutant. You just rot and become part of the soil. And to be honest, a lot of coffins, as well, depending on the soil of of the the cemetery or the burial space where you are, a lot of coffins are preserved for centuries. You know, I've seen coffins from in crypts from what was that, some sixteenth century, that are perfectly intact, just with with skeletons in. But it's just a natural process; things rot. You're fine. The church and crypts didn't fall into the ground in a big fireball. However, when you do embalming and you're putting a lot of uh, quite large amounts of chemicals like formaldehyde into the body, there have been instances in the states of. Uh, the amount of formaldehyde in the water table um being slightly higher in certain areas mm-hmm. so that that has been noticed i don't know to what extent it would ever be like a genuine threat to people's well-being because i don't think it's to such an extent that it would be noticeable in any water supply but i think it has been noticed but mm-hmm. if you're put in the ground just in a shroud or if you're mm-hmm. just chucked in <laughs> just, you're just like no the this one. is this is me this is how i want to go then you're, you're absolutely fine. There's Certainly the people living nearby aren't going to suddenly stand up one day and then keel over because you rotted nearby. Right. That's right.
0: And that's, that's good one to of know. The, that was
2: the
1: main question. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs>
0: I was just gonna say, that's one of the things that I think has been uh, such, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Kate. But um, there's this lie out there, as I've perceived it and as I've seen some people talk about it in the past, that uh, th- they view the recently dead as completely diseased and disgusting and not something you can touch or be around etc when in fact i mean it does take several days for the decomposition to happen but with the ability to clean to to keep things up this the dead body is not necessarily as deadly as people make it out to be
2: no not at all they're no no more dangerous As they were than they were alive and Mm -hmm. i think you're right that people have this sudden fear that when the you know when the person has gone as it were that then they're just left with this like this corruptive yeah force within their house and it's certainly not i'm I'm a big big advocate of of people interacting with their loved ones whether it be like you say like cleaning or -hmm. just keeping them in their house overnight which you can do you know with Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. all you need is just a few ice packs even that you don't necessarily always need there's interacting with that person and showing that care in death I think can be really really healing and a really positive process for a lot of people it is scary it's very jarring to be near a near a dead body especially someone that you you know you love and have known for a very long time it's it's horrible but to get through that initial sort of gut punch I think having a very healing very gentle process of caring for them and not just immediately medicalizing that and handing it over yes. to professionals and yes sort of approaching the body as, as like medical waste of sorts i think that's a far healthier way and i think as soon as you realize that there's nothing dangerous there's nothing scary about a, a dead loved one then you can kind of get your head about you with mm-hmm. different areas of planning the funeral planning the grave and you'll you'll think more for their interests and you'll you'll go less onto to autopilot and be less yeah. likely then to arrange things that they wouldn't have wanted and certainly that you don't want. So I think it's yeah. a good way to avoid unpleasant situations down the line as well but I, I think it really does have benefits definitely.
1: We have um, um, a, a tradition in the Orthodox Church of kissing the mm-hmm. Um and a lot of people find that a little bit jarring but um, it is part of our funeral tradition that we will kiss the body mm. because we recognize this is the person it's you know the spirit is gone but this is not you know <laughs> this is not just some lump of, of of nothing anymore this is still the loved one and, and mm. we do kiss them and yeah. a, a lot of people find that tradition a little bit jarring and when I first became a catechumen in the Orthodox Church that was one of the things that kind of made me go whoa and then um, as I became to uh, became more understanding of the traditions and and the beliefs. I was like this does make perfect sense to to kiss our repose to um give them that final kiss that final sign of love that okay you you are what i will become and and i kiss you and i recognize this is a natural part of your life mm. and um i actually find that to be quite a beautiful tradition. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, i didn't mean to interrupt you cam, go ahead.
0: No, you're good. I was just going to say um i i do want to talk about my um experience with my dad because it's jessica's heard it once before um but it was on an episode that didn't make it to the public because like i said i was not there mentally mm-hmm. <laughs> for
1: there were some, some edibles silly, involved <laughs> silly reasons
0: um but what was incredible about and i don't mean incredible in a good way but what was incredible about this process about his death about the um, funeral, the cremation and all of that were the vast differences in response from people. So like my my, me, I was more detached. I was making jokes because that heals my soul. (laughs) And then my brother and sister were absolutely wailing Hmm. like just in this, this place that I couldn't quite understand and I couldn't deal with. Um, but what, what happened was we had to go and pick up his ashes from the crematory and I get there and um, my brother was not at all prepared to deal with my level of curiosity because I I got in this place and I'm like, this is a person that I've never been able to ask questions of before. This is a situation I don't understand. This is brand new. I have to know. And so, you know, I, I asked him, I said, could you show me the furnace or the oven? And, and you know, I said oven because I'm an idiot. <laughs> but, you know, can you show me the, the incinerator, the furnace, whatever you call it? And uh, so he actually walked me through uh, his whole process. And Mm -hmm. so we were back there. My brother was sitting, standing next to me, utterly horrified, like hating me for asking these questions. But he, he walked me through how hot it gets. He showed me the inside. He showed me the, the pilot light. He then showed me that once it's all done, how he sifts all of the, the ash into a thing and then pushed, puts it into the sifter and has to get out things like rings or screws that were in bones. Or this, that, and the other, and um, he he picked up a bone that was in that sifter, and he was like, "You'd think that this is really hard," and he just crushed it between his fingers, and it turned to dust, and it fell down, and my brother ran out of that room because oh. that was that was a moment for him, I think, because it was for me just in a different way, just the the mortality of it, the um, uh, how. Not, what's not what's the word how vulnerable how weak how easily broken yeah. we can be and so he ran out and then i wish kind of that i'd walked with him because then he continued the tour and he goes to this this cooler and he's like okay so this is where we hold the bodies before we take care of them and um and so there's just this cooler this freezer filled with bodies and i'm just like this is so bizarre it's so interesting i'm very interested and then i saw a um, body bag that was half filled. And I went, you got tell me what's in that, because I don't know why it's half filled. And He goes, it's a six year old boy. Oh, and I go. And I think that that was something that um, even though it's very dark, very macabre, very, it was very affecting to me, mm. because it was another level of understanding my own mortality and understanding death in some way. I'm so glad my brother didn't follow us in there though.
1: joke.
0: That would have been bad.
1: Yeah. But I,
0: so when I saw, like I was looking for, like Jessica said, I was looking for a mortician at first because I was curious about these different processes, but then I saw your, your Twitter feed and I saw the taxidermy. I saw that. And I'm like, this is kind of the level of interest that I have. I'm, I'm curious about, um, death and how people react to death and how they memorialize. Culture. I love the cultural aspect of it. Um, one question, have you ever been to Hollywood forever cemetery? Have you been to Los Angeles?
2: Sadly not. I've done a, a thousand online tours of it, but never been I, yet. It's on the
0: list. What's, what's ironic about it though, is my brother is the one who took me there. And so, you know, um, John, was it Johnny Ramone? is the, is in that cemetery and his headstone is him playing guitar and like rocking Like there, and you, you walk through this giant cemetery and there are people who are absolutely crazy famous, the people who aren't. And if you ever get a chance to come to the United States, um, that is definitely one you should see. And mm-hmm. you said you've, you've looked at it online, but
2: yeah, yeah.
0: Um, let me, let me, so sorry, that was a lot of rambling. I apologize. Um, have you ever had that sort of interaction yourself with like a close family member or anything that was close enough for you to have your curiosity peaked to that point or do you think that you wouldn't go in there in terms of the, just, the
2: death process
0: yeah or am i just yeah. a bad person yeah. who was too curious at the wrong time <laughs> yeah.
2: no 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 death, not at all not at all i think that the closest i've been i mean i i haven't lost a parent so i i i, I can't empathize on it at a very practical level but yeah. it's a horrible horrible thing Um but I uh, for a time I lived with my my grandmother and I was her carer um, for about four years and so from being her carer and looking after her while she was alive just doing basic hygiene needs you know making sure she you know she had company things mm-hmm. like that and it was um, I think a very that experience pre-death mm-hmm. I think was just as affecting as the experiences after because so i think mm. caring for someone as they reach the end of their life and seeing how the body fails but how the spirit kind of still stays strong i think that's a really really important and very privileged position that i found myself in yeah. so when she she died at home and it was quite a prolonged period she was old but being able to be there by her bedside as you know as her consciousness went, as she became nonverbal, things like that. That was very affecting to think there's no coming back from this. Yeah. You know, this is she's gone, but her body's still clinging on. And then after that, when she had finally gone, having that interaction with her body and keeping her in the house for not, not as long, maybe as I would have liked, but keeping her in the house for a short amount of time afterwards, I found to be very, very helpful and being able to, because I'd said my goodbyes while she was yeah. unconscious, but to be there and be able to see her body and be able to kind of see the finality of it, but also acknowledge acknowledge mortality, I suppose, in, diff- in different ways, That acknowledging my own and thinking that's going to be me, yes. but also acknowledging that it was right. And I think that's quite a, a hard thing. When someone's, especially in pain, or if they're, they're suffering towards the end of their life, to feel a sense of relief on their behalf, Yes, yeah. I think is is a very powerful thing, and a, a really weird, uncomfortable feeling to to kind of process that someone you love, who you, you want to be around forever, has gone, but it you' you realize how selfish that is and how selfish we can really all act when we're dealing with the death of someone else. so
0: yeah
2: yeah, that that was kind of my my main interaction. But like you said, with with the the funerals, we'd spoken about what she wanted when she died. Some of the things that she did want. She, she had an amazing sense of humor. You know, I think a lot of people saw her as just a little old doddery lady. She had an evil streak to her. She was brilliant. <laughs> it's and my so, favorite oh, evil old lady. <laughs> oh, completely. She would completely play the part and go, oh, it's lovely to see you, dear. It's really nice. The second they're out the door, they're going, let's stay so long today. The they bring in that, why do they think I care about that? Go on, put the kettle on. I need to have a talk about this. The you know, woman so.
1: after my own heart, right oh, there. Brilliant.
2: brilliant. <laughs> but um, yeah, having like knowing what she wanted, some of some of those things were to leave, let's say, certain notes to people, um, which <laughs> would uh, would have upset those people should they receive them. Um, there's, there's certain, there was certainly a, a process where I thought, okay, that would be hilarious to do that, but I'm dealing with this death in a different way because I've had such an immediate
0: yeah. um,
2: interaction with it. So maybe leaving this offensive note on so-and-so's doorstep would make me laugh until next week, but might really, <laughs> really upset them. And I might make an enemy for life because they'd say, no, she was lovely. Why, she was a lovely old lady. Why on earth would she want that? Um, so even, even in her funeral, even down to the flowers, I knew what she wanted but to push that on my family who were saying that no these were her favorite flowers no she liked these and you have to sit there and go well i i know i know you're wrong but it's coming from a good place or maybe it's coming from a selfish place and then you have to weigh up what's worth what's worth fighting over and what's not when it's already a really emotionally charged event but i think yeah definitely going with with my granny from death to to burial and then she was cremated but i i wasn't able to to have the tour which i'm very jealous of i've Dude. been to i've been to many um crematoriums but um yeah never got to to see the cremulator at the Dude, end
0: i'm telling you like yeah, yeah there I'll was pull some
2: strings eventually i've seen old ones that aren't used anymore i've been
0: in one it was Eat. it was so fascinating because mm. you know the fact that they're, they are they sift it through the thing to make sure they don't get any screws or stuff, and then it goes down into a grinder, mm. and it's just like there's just all these little things that I'm just fascinated by, and I'm like, yeah. I know my brother's just dying to get out of here, but I'm like, I have to ask. I'd, I'm not going to have this chance yeah. some other time. Yeah. Um, but speaking of your grandmother wanting to leave notes, one of my plans is to That's brilliant. I'm totally doing that. Is to absolutely <laughs> go on Twitter, <laughs> and um make a bunch of scheduled tweets far into the future (laughs) so that after I die, I'm still tweeting and just throwing people off. That's definitely my plans. Um, But as um, you say, you kind of watched your grandmother pass and you got to know her. Um, One thing that I would add to that is we need to write down what we want. We need to have it in our hand. We need need to to have people know exactly what we want. That way there are no arguments because Mm. there was a lot of stuff that came up with my family, like I said, but luckily I was able to say, you know, he wants this, you know, this is what he wants. Um, So that definitely write it down. But as for, you know, watching your grandmother leave, even before she had passed, I think that that may be why I wasn't in the same state as my, my brother and sister, because I lived with the man. I just recently, I think maybe a year and a half before moved away from home. And so I had known him very deeply. And before I even left, he was no longer there. He was moving, he was talking, he was doing things, but my dad was gone. Mm. Mm -hmm. The man I knew was gone. And so when he died, it was one because he'd had some strokes that he didn't know about, and um, so he was essentially any of the pieces that you knew were no longer there. And my siblings didn't know this. They didn't see it firsthand. And so when he passed away, I was very mad. He was 66 years old. He wasn't old. Mm. And what had happened was they did a hip replacement and the doctor screwed up. And that's why he passed. And, you know, no one else has quite said it that way. I know that that's what happened. I know the doctor screwed up. Um, but when he passed, I was mad about that fact. But beyond that, I was so relieved for him because he mm-hmm. was not happy anymore he hadn't been for a long time he wasn't there and so when he passed away because get this so he, we had to put him in a home because there was no way for us to take care of him because we just did like medically we couldn't do it we couldn't mm-hmm. afford to have nurses come in or do any of that and this old man do you know why he had to have a hip replacement because he was trying to escape and he did it periodically okay
1: I have things
0: to say. <laughs> he this this old man who was very skinny because he'd stopped eating and all of this, he he watched the the guard or whoever, I don't know if they call it a guard, put in the passcode to the door enough so that I mean, so he knew the passcode. He used the passcode and then he jumped over, climbed and jumped over a six foot fence. Oh and that's how he broke his hip. Yep.
1: No one is more spry than an elderly person escaping from a home. (laughs) And I know this for a fact. You would, these people turn into NFL players. (laughs) Um, And they're the tiniest, most frail little people. And they will bowl you over. My very first job was in a nursing home. I got caught smoking in the school bathroom when I was 16. And my dad thought, if you go work in a nursing home and see all of the old people coughing and hacking, you won't want to smoke anymore. Well, literally, he know that the old people give you cigarettes. So that did not work out the way that he planned. However, I got to spend a lot of time with elderly people. And I think that that was really good for me because I um, understood like um, being old was not something to be afraid of. It was actually a privilege. And um, there's something called sundowner syndrome, which um, a lot of the people who have dementia go through, when the sun starts to go down, a lot of the old ladies think they have to go home and cook their husband's dinner. They're trying to get out of there. And these are, are clever, escape artists like you would not believe my goodness um so yeah i really got um a very interesting experience out of that whole deal and i will tell you no one can escape like old people can escape they will get past you like that so watch your old Um, but one thing i genuinely have appreciated about the victorians is that they were very comfortable with death and they they were around it and and people still died in the home And they weren't as disconnected. Like we're so afraid of it in modern culture. We're terrified to see our old people pass away. Even though this is such like a naturally, perfectly natural part of our lives, we shunt it off into other places so that we don't have to witness it. And as a result, like a person like me, I've never been around that enough that it is terrifying to me, you know? And so I I recommend that young people do volunteer Um, in nursing homes and other places and get to know and befriend some elderly people. They're very interesting. They have very dirty senses of humor. And um, the idea of your grandmother wanting to leave mean notes to people when Mm. she passed just, I don't know, just warms the little cockles of my heart so much. And I'm like, yes, this is my kind of evil. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very into it. And um, I I think it's a great crime in our society that we're not with our elderly when they go. And I think it's a great privilege that you got to be there with her when, when she passed and when her consciousness went on, like that's, she went on her journey and you were there to got like, be with her when the door opened for that. And I, I think that's lovely. Um, and I, I also just wanted to make the remark that, you know, age and corruption is not of our bodies is, is not a thing to be terrified of. Um, it is a great aging is a great privilege. Not everyone gets to do it. Some of us knock off very young and very odd and weird circumstances. So if you you get to be that age, you've you've really like you've beaten the odds, and good mm. for you. You know, I I if I get to be old, I think that's a great privilege, and I I can't wait to be mean and like secretly mean <laughs> and like that's so
2: great. Absolutely, there's, there's a freedom. There's a freedom afforded with age. I think well you can pretty much get away with anything.
0: Yeah.
1: There was um old people. mm, I think I think it was Queen Anne. I'm not sure which queen it was. There were many long-standing queens. But um she had in her age uh had a rivalry with some other lady, and she wrote her a very mean letter. And the lady was so upset by the letter that she died on the spot when she read it. And I was like, God, old women are vicious and like i i just sort of loved the idea that you were that she was mean enough to kill a woman
2: (laughs) yeah that's next level that's very impressive
1: yes power the queen was so mad at you that you just died (laughs) to get away from it
0: (laughs) so what's very interesting about what you do is you curate these different stories and pictures with burials and beyond and uh the most recent one i read was about the um the taxidermy, um, polar bear that was used Mm. as a mint mascot, which is taxidermy is so fascinating to me. I have, I don't know if you noticed, I have a, um, jackalope, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, the Southwestern American cryptid. Um, but I, I would love to have an actual jackalope mount in the Mm. back. They're so expensive. Um, but, what a, you have combed through a lot of stories. You've come through a lot of these little anecdotes. Are there any of them that you've come across that were that are your favorites, or that made you go, "This is maybe the the best thing I've read when it comes to oh, to God. death"?
2: Um, I think there's there's always something. You know, I'm always getting excited by by something. I think I'm constantly trawling. There was um, the like the demon cat that's meant to live inside the Capitol building. <laughs> That that I found a few months ago and was like, well, this uh, okay, demon cat. I'm sold. We need to research this. So, which again, as as an English person, it isn't really doesn't really come up in conversation. So I don't know if you're both going. Oh, of course, the demon cat. Yeah, we all know I've, about that. I've never, yeah, heard but of I'm demon googling cats. it. Yeah, they... <laughs> there's yes. little cat prints everywhere. Yeah, oh. supposedly there was a, a a demon cat. This is has gone on for centuries. I think at least since um there was a point where instead of security like trained security in the capitol building they had just kind of drunk soldiers that they they could <laughs> just bribe to say look can you can you do a shift and these soldiers would say oh something just brushed up against me but there's nothing there and then as from those stories of soldiers feeling something against them or hearing or seeing a blurred little creature then it became all oh, there's DC, the demon cat. And then every like with all these folkloric things, it's been built upon and in a couple of slabs of concrete in the Capitol building, there are tiny little cat paw prints. that I think have made it onto the like the official tour now. So you can go and visit the sign of the demon cat. Nice. But, um, so everything everything from that to you know when um if you're scrolling on social media and there's always these really ridiculous um Photos that say, Did you know, you know, in whatever year Edward M- Mordrake was born with an evil head on the back of his own that whispered terrible things to him at night and he committed suicide age 32. Yeah. And then I see those and I go, mm, Probably didn't. So <laughs> let's have a look. And that's it's how an you get story, an though. essay on Edward Mordrake or Mordrake. Who was <clears throat> always doing circuits on the internet because someone, I think it was Ripley's Believe It or Not, got hold of the the story and made a really great like wax effigy of this man's head with this sort of mangled Voldemort-style skull <laughs> on the back of it. And it turns out that it was it has English roots and it's there it was a, a man who collated uh, folk tales mainly from around I don't think it was from all over, but it was quite a lot from Norfolk. Of things like the the great fish woman of Norfolk and the almighty ladybird of the north, you know these ridiculous sort of cryptid type things,
1: mm-hmm.
2: none of which have been picked up by social media because they they're just a bit too ridiculous, they're a bit too crazy. When it's you know like the uh, the hideous worm child, which is like everyone's going to go, no, that's you're mad. But Edward Mordrake, he really caught people's imaginations, and it turns out that he was just an invention. But the story of this man with an evil head on the back of his own that tormented him daily by it was whispering unimaginable evils into his own <laughs> ear. It catches people's attention and you think, yeah. oh, I want to tell that story, but also I want to find the root. I want to find out who invented Edward Mordrake. So that was a fun one. So yeah. Um, so there's one... <laughs> always something that's interesting.
0: <laughs> one of the interesting things to me is the cultural differences in death. I think that, you know, between, you know, America and England, they're not going to be hugely different. Um, There's going to be some obviously, but there are extremely interesting death rites and rituals throughout the world. There's one that I've seen a few times where they will exhume their ancestors and parade them around town. Peru, and,
1: they do that.
0: And then there, there are some places, and there are some people in America, I'm pretty sure, who will have their um, dead, you know, uh, embalmed or whatever. But they do it in a very lifelike way. Mm. And so you'll, they'll, you'll walk into the funeral, and your buddy is sitting, your dead buddy is sitting there in a chair, wearing all of his favorite stuff, doing something that he loves. Yeah. and it's it's just so fascinating to me that even within like American con, um, American culture is kind of a misnomer because there are like 300 American cultures and, I mean 300 there, are, million. there are, yeah yeah there are there are at least 50 and at most three you know what 100 million,
1: something million something like people, <laughs> so maybe each unto his own culture in a way
0: um but it's just so fascinating to me that Americans, kind of collectively in a sense with some exceptions obviously are so afraid of death because there there are it's interesting because there are people who are in the christian mind who see death as the enemy mm. you know death is something that we we are to overcome death is a, an evil and then there are also people within christianity who believe that death is a good, that that is, you know, the um, the entrance, the gate to something much better. And so have you done a, much looking into different cultures and things like that, that have interested you, that have made you go, oh, wow, I would have never thought about death that way?
2: Yeah, I think, well, like you said, any culture that has a very physical and direct interaction with the deceased, like a lot of, like you said, a lot of countries in in South America <laughs> do like br- cleaning of the bones and brushing of the bones ceremonies and it's those sort of pictures that I find they're what pique your interest and they're also what gets taken out of context
0: yeah. most
2: commonly so I, I find those really interesting but a lot of um, like I say, Greek and um, a lot of Jewish death rituals I'm, I'm by no means an expert on it but I'm fortunate that a friend of mine is and yeah, seeing different ways that people show reverence for the mm-hmm. body, especially within a religious context, mm-hmm. um, I find really, really fascinating that it's a, it's a privileged position and people within a certain religious community will be given the the privilege, and it's unpaid generally within these communities, um, of cleaning the bodies and preparing them for burial. And mm-hmm. it's there's a real appreciation of not only the deceased, but the people who give up their time to... look after the deceased or hold an interest in in their in their burial rites whereas i think you're right in in a lot of situations that have a more a more christian basis around them even just showing an interest in in burial or in cemeteries even if people were buried with you know full christian service whatever their particular religion was and it was all seen as very above board at the time to show an interest in that posthumously as it were is seen to be quite a a horrible quality in someone or that if someone shows an interest in death in general as in death practices death culture death rituals or an interest in working with the dead or helping the dead that's seen as somehow being like a a corruptive element to your personality like it's associated with some some evil force Mm -hmm. so you kind of you can in trying to improve things and improve end of life care you can also really ostracize yourself in a lot of um, European yeah. and and Northern American uh, communities, mm. I feel, but I, I think anything where you directly interact with the body, whether it be removing the remains to put them in a receptacle so someone else can use that plot, or if it's like you say, or like capturing monks who were mummified and held up within the walls of their monastery for for, mm-hmm. <clears throat> for hundreds of years, I think anything where people are confronting death in um, a very loving and reverential way. I think reverential is really the key word.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I find very interesting and very comforting when there's um autonomy added to the, to that. So I think it's very different when you say like cleaning of the ancestors' bones, because that is still the ancestor. That ancestor has autonomy even though they're past. But also when you get um uh, catacombs and bone churches like the the Sedlec yeah. what the, I was
1: thinking like, over of-
2: yeah that's that's beautiful and really interesting but for a different reason because it's complete removal of the self and complete removal of agency but it's also a reflection of people's devout faith because they 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 became the church i mean there's no greater yes. yeah. no greater privilege really if you're within that community you become their place of worship um so i find that really interesting when you introduce like religious divides and and yeah. religious intent the relics case. of the saints
1: too. How mm. they'll preserve the finger bone of this person or that person. And even in the um, it's called the Antimensian, which is the the surface upon which um the Holy Eucharist is done on Sundays in the Orthodox Church. There is usually the chip of a bone of some saint or other that is brought from the bishop and sanctifies this space in which you can do the Holy Eucharist. And um in ours at our church, we have um uh, Saint, Eli- uh, the Grand Duchess Elizabeth from Russia mm-hmm. and she was ki- killed during the Bolshevik Revolution and um, the Bolsheviks uh, for the people, the, the, the high heads of state types of people that were killed, the, um, the Bolsheviks would um, put their bodies or splash their bodies with acid so that the remains could not be interred properly, could not, relics could not be found of them and I think it was in 2008 the remains of the royal family um, Nicholas, Alexandra, the girls, and the son had been found but were in a, a terrible state because they, they barely were able to get DNA evidence off of it mm. because they had recognized, the, the Bolsheviks at the time recognized that if these relics existed, these remains e- existed, it would present somewhere for people to gather, some vestige of the old royal dynasty that people could come to and pay respect to. And so some hundred years, 110 years later after this event happened, what was it, 80? I don't know. I don't know the exact timing, Um, but the Russian government took these small bits of remains and interred them in a church and there was a huge ceremony, huge religious ceremony because we recognize on some level that these remains do hold power for us. They hold somewhere for us to gather in remembrance. Mm. And um, there is, you know, religious or not, it seems to be universal amongst our cultures that the bones of our ancestors represent somewhere together. Mm. And um, so, yeah, I think that there's a lot to that, the the, the reverence of the bones, um, sort of a recognition of, of we're all moving in that direction, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. Um I love the the bone churches. They're they're wonderful and beautiful. F- I agree.
0: Fascinating. Well and and you mentioned, you know, the differences between, you know, someone who shows any interest in death or these ideas they're kind of looked down upon by different types of people. Um for me, uh you know, I I actually I'm I'm Christian. I have a degree in biblical studies. Mm. I think death is fascinating. I think mm-hmm. that skulls are beautiful and cool and f- interesting and I have I only have one little one right now. But um, I'm, I I the I'll say it the English way, but that Van Gogh painting that I used for the art for this episode, mm-hmm. I'm going to have an American traditional version tattooed on me
2: okay. because I
0: I it's so fascinating to me. But you're not wrong because my mom hates skulls. She says they're death, that she says they're evil. Um, She hates snakes. And so even though I have a a rattlesnake on my arm, she hates that. She's going to hate the new one. There are these (laughs) symbols in her mind that equate to these horrible, terrible, corruptive things. Mm. And I'm just like, this stuff's cool. (laughs) And Uh, so I definitely understand. (laughs) Um, But that's the people around you that you haven't, um, like your your family friends, not the ones that are more also interested in this. Have mm-hmm. you gotten any weird feedback from being fascinated by this, or has anyone been rude? <laughs>
2: um, extended family have never, never understood me. But I think that sounds so. They've never understood me. Oh, because I'm, <laughs> I'm, like I'm so girls. deep and emotional. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I think I think with with me especially because I've been. Uh, involved with the goth subculture since I was 12 or something. I'm certainly not. I There was a point in my life where I was wearing corsets every day and big boots, <laughs> and now I've become more academic. I'm lazy and I love pyjamas. But um, <laughs> I think there's an element of that, that when it became an academic interest and, and kind of a professional interest, that um, a lot of people kind of dismissed it as Kate's trying to shock. And it was always that, ah. you don't actually like it. It's like I, was, I was told, um, I was talking about this the other day, I, I was told when I, I really got into the Sex Pistols when I was about 12 or 13 and I, I just discovered proper punk and I thought, this is amazing. I'd never heard anything like this. And I was telling um, a friend at like a theater club and her mum said to me, no, you don't like the Sex Pistols. No one likes the Sex Pistols. People only say that to shock. I was there at the time and I know about this, so don't be stupid. And I thought, well, no, but I, I like the sex pistols. You know. Oh so you know, it's a very, it's a very glib example. But when you're saying, no, no, cemeteries are fascinating. There is a point where like friends of, of older relations and extended family go, Yeah, yeah, you like cemeteries, don't you? Oh, spooky <laughs> Kate. And I'm going, No, 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 no. There's, there's great cultural and social history here. Um, but my immediate family, like my mum, my, my stepdad and my sister, they took a while, especially when I got more interested in collecting um, a lot of death ephemera. So I collect a lot of funeral cards. I collect a lot of mourning jewellery, um, oh. hair jewellery, that cabinet, there we go, <coughs> behind me, that's full of hair jewellery, mourning jewellery, this is all mourning stuff. Um, hmm. When I first started bringing bits in, there was, there was let's call it a school of thought, that they were either evil, like you say, like I was bringing in like a totem of death to celebrate it. Whereas really uh, what I mainly say about anything relating to Victorian mourning is that it's born from sentimentality and it's born from love. But it's also it's unusual, you know, that we've diverted ourselves so far from a culture that is our own, um, that was far more healthy in their interpretations of grief. Yes, I I agree. um, with that my family have kind of come around now especially in terms of the jewelry because that's seen as quite a nice ladylike thing now and not just Kate's collecting the hair of dead people. So, (laughs) so We've come on leaps and bounds. My grandmother
1: uh, passed down uh, her jewelry box to me Mm -hmm. and in her jewelry box are little pieces of braided hair that belong to reposed people who I don't know of and will never meet but at the same time, I recognize that she didn't keep these things out of a ghoulishness. They're representations mm. of love. Yeah. And so I will keep them. I'm not going to discard these things. They're great symbols of her her love, you know. And as if I love her, I will treasure the things that she loved. There's also a few oddities in there, like um the nail from a dog. And other things. But at the same time, I recognize like to most people, yes, this would be sort of ghoulish trash and should be discarded, but they are symbols of love of love. I think you're completely right about that.
0: Well, I, I hate to be the nerd who who quotes a comic book movie thing, but there was um, I don't know if you watched WandaVision, Kate, from Disney Plus.
2: I didn't. But, but I think I might know the quote that you're going to say.
0: Um, but at one point vision says, uh, but what is love or no, but what is grief, but love persevering?
1: Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that's lovely. It's
0: Mm -hmm. very, I, I remember hearing it being like, that's such a better way to look at grief than the way we typically do. Because most people, when you're grieving cannot understand your grief. They cannot understand what you're going through. When my dad died, a friend of mine said, yeah, well, you know, my dog died. So I kind of understand. I I don't think you do. You can't understand what what this is. And I don't understand it the same way that my brother does, that my sister does, that my mom did. And so it's all very interesting because I think it's very individual. And grief is individual insofar as a lot of the feelings are the same, but the way that you express it, the way that you work it out is almost always tied to how you loved that person. And in that it's a very individual expression that I think grief is terrifying, but Mm -hmm. when, when I have the moments of grief that I still have with my dad, that I will always have, it's like my, my brother may grieve that he didn't have enough time with my dad because he was only 66. I'm grieving. Um, what I view as sure missed moments, but also where I failed because there are things that before he died, I failed on. And people will say, no, no, you didn't. Don't think that way. It's like, no, no, no. There are ways that I failed the man and I am working through that. And part of my grief is reconciling myself to him, even though he's not actually a part of this situation. If that Mm. makes sense. We're not talking, we're not chatting, but (laughs) Grief is not something to be afraid of and not something to be pushed down purely because so many people find it inconvenient because people tell you to get over it. People Mm -hmm. tell you you have to, this is grief is one of the greatest learning periods you can have in your life because the way that you learn to deal with that, that colors your whole existence. It colors how you view humanity. And so I'm, that's part of why I'm, I was excited to talk to you because it's hard to have a smart conversation about death these days because people are afraid of it. They're so afraid of death that they push their old people away. Mm. And that's so sad to me because if you look at the history of the world, back when we were all tribes to what, a couple, several hundred years ago? Like there was, or a hundred years ago, maybe even less.
1: No, we're still the tribal. Old, but go on, the sorry. Old,
0: no, no, I'm not talking <laughs> about tribalism. I'm saying... Uh, until that point we didn't cart off our cart off our old mm-hmm. we became their carers we became the people that loved them to the grave and now the vast majority of i don't know how it is elsewhere but the vast maybe not the vast majority but i feel like a, a majority of americans when their parents get old they throw them away in a big mm-hmm. way and it's sad to me and i think we can do better by humanity as a whole and our parents because there's so much more to life and to learn and grief and watching that passing, like you said earlier, is there a better lesson in life than dealing with death?
2: I think that's that's the final big one, isn't it? It's, yeah. you, if there's one thing to make you appreciate all that you do have and all that you did have with that individual as well, it's to watch the process of that coming to an end. And it's, it's the only finality really in life that is completely inescapable i know they say death and taxes but you know yeah people do have a good go at evading taxes <laughs> but <laughs> with with death there really really is no no coming back at all i think like yeah. you say with with grief i don't think i think the way that we approach the dead um nowadays i think it's changing in a very positive direction mm-hmm. and i think that memorialization is is returning in a more positive direction in terms of keeping aspects of the individual. Like we're seeing a bit of a resurgence in things like hair jewellery, but in a far less elaborate way. And yeah. we're seeing people retain um ashes as diamonds, things like that. So I think we're we're slowly getting back in touch with the dead, but in a very commercialized, familiar familiar sort of way. Aren't those his glasses?
0: These are my dad's glasses. Okay. The only two things I asked of his when he passed were his glasses and his Bible. Because if there was any constant in my dad's life, it was that he couldn't see for shit. And every morning without fail, he woke up. I don't think he un- he had the breadth of, breadth of understanding that I do with my degree or that some other people do. But that man woke up every morning at 5 a.m. and the first thing he did was read his Bible. And so when he died, I didn't want the tv or this or that i wanted this in the bible and those are going to be things i'm going to keep his busted old bible and his glasses i'm going to keep and they're next to my desk and i've never thought about why i keep them there but i do and so it's so it's so it's, it's interesting i'm i'm learning something as you're speaking
1: <laughs> when i was um 16 we went to Graceland which is the um house that Elvis Presley owned, mm-hmm. the property yeah. that he owned, and at the very end of the tour is his grave, which is on, Grace, the, on the Graceland property. The tourists walk through and pass it. It's him and he's on, um, on either side with his parents, and it's these three gravestones, and they're playing this god-awful, um, I don't know what the instrument is, but they used to play a lot of funerary music on this piano-like t- uh, thing, harpsichord. So there's this horrible funerary harpsichord music that plays very loudly in the room as these masses of tourists pass his grave. And I thought this guy was haunted all of his life by his fame and even in his repose, he's sort of like placed in this terribly loud populated room. Mm. Um, So I found that rather, like I said, um, I've been using the word ghoulish a lot today, but I thought that that was particularly ghoulish. And the the item in the tour that I found The most, I don't know, reverent or um, reminiscent of the man was a television set that he had shot once in anger. I don't know what was on the TV that he felt the need to point a gun at the screen and shot it. But this item, I remember looking at it and staring at it and seeing the hole in it and thinking this is an item of him. This is, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, like, I'm not a particularly big Elvis fan. My aunt was, and that's why we were on this tour. And I remember getting to the, the grave site in there and being like, this is horrible. I want to get out of this room as soon as possible. And it didn't have anything to do with um, it being graves or anything like that. It's just the, the irreverence with, with which this yeah. was being treated. Sort of um, not recognizing who he was as a person at all. That this, this fame had haunted him into his death. And here we were all taking photos, like people would put their kids in a line in front of the graves and then snap a photo. And I thought, oh God, get me out of here. <laughs> like, um,
2: yeah. It's kind yeah, of a commodification so I... of, of celebrity and death, which I think you see a lot in, probably not to such an extent as Elvis. Also shooting a TV is possibly the most American thing I've ever heard. So <laughs> there's no wonder that he is you know, like a, an unofficial saint. Really is. I presume there was an eagle flying by at the same time. Like Um, screeching eagle, and he had a beer in his
1: hand and like shot the TV. Yeah, Yeah.
2: yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I think with with a lot of other celebrity graves that are in public spaces, particularly in like Pierre Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, where you've got Jim Morrison, Oscar Wilde, and and things Mm -hmm. like that, the way we interact with those, I think it's very interesting. That's that's kind of a we don't see them as people because we still, in our minds, see them as as other so even in death when you say it's the great leveller in death maybe it is but certainly in memorialization it isn't but the um right. the, the elvis blasting incident does sound it sounds like um in the film uh Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where you're going through the tunnel and of kaleidoscope <laughs> kaleidoscopic sounds and everything's screaming i think that's yeah. very it's very fitting in a horrible way you in in ho- know yeah the, yeah.
1: I there w- it was the moment was pregnant with meaning. There were so many layers going on there that I mean honestly when I was in front of the TV I stood there for a long time looking at it because it did feel very memorializing. It felt like a an item of his life. I was connected to him through this item and I was standing there in this quiet place of reverence. And then the graves were this totally opposite feeling and I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Mm. And um yeah, I just, uh, the, what you're talking about, the memorialization being the key factor, that's that's for the living. That mm. has way more to do with the living than the dead. The dead, for all we know, they don't know what we're doing with their bodies, or, or yeah. might much care at that point. So all of this is for us, and and, and how we want to be maybe seen after we go. And yeah. I know being in that that graveyard that is the opposite of what I would want. No harpsichords, anyone? If it should come to that, <laughs> not one harpsichord, please. Thank you.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's there's certainly an element of people wanting to trying to think this, put, trying to put this in a far more intelligent way. I really can't. Of, <laughs> after someone dies, a lot of people who maybe were just passing acquaintances. In life suddenly want to stick their awe in and be mm. i am the most grief stricken i once saw them in a supermarket so i think that certainly reverence of celebrity is is the most guilt-ridden uh stage of of death care and, and memorialization because there will be people that you, you remove the sense of self of the celebrity you completely remove their agency
0: mm.
2: because especially in the case of elvis maybe he would wanted, to have been scattered or or been put in a in a communal cemetery elsewhere but there would have been people who would have had enormous um pressure enormous social pressure much like the victorians before them to conform to something that's seen as appropriate right yeah which uh, families fall into a kind of really uncomfortable trap of doing as well when it comes to Mm -hmm. well they wanted this but what will the neighbors say what will the people Mm. In the community say if we don't do something far more elaborate and conventional
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. see i think what elvis really wanted would have been to be cremated and then put into a bullet and shot into a tv
2: <laughs> Possibly. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna reconsider that for myself now i think yeah
0: i think okay <laughs> Well, yeah, you, you may have to come to America for that.
2: Yeah, um, my finally the American dream. Yeah, My husband <laughs> wants the Viking
1: burial. He wants to be put on a long ship, set out to sea, and then an, an arrow fire, a flaming arrow fired. And I'm like, you know, they're not going to let us do that. And then I, I think a couple of years ago in Maine, they passed a law that this is a, a form of burial that people can have, mm-hmm. um, that you can be buried sort of buried at sea in a burning Viking longship, and I thought, gosh, things have, uh, the, the attitudes toward death are definitely turning if we're allowing these sort of pagan, old school pagan, my husband is not pagan, he has no connection to the Viking culture, he just thinks it's cool, and he knows it bothers me when he talks about it, but at the same time, like, um, the variety of ways we might be placed into repose is expanding. And I think that that's a really good thing because the sort of um, very Christianized uh, method of of coffin, burial, church service, um, doesn't reflect the vast number of cultures that we, you know, we're a a global world now, people coming all together from different places. And we're all not going to be sort of satisfied by that um monochromatic way of being placed into our final repose. So um but yeah he, he'll be lucky if we have the money to do that kind of thing. So.
0: <laughs> she she brings this up and maybe you know this. Did the Vikings actually do that? Because I see that and I'm like
2: good okay. question.
0: Do you, I, you happen I, to I'm know? not
2: I really don't know but I, okay. I do know that a few years ago someone did try on two instances someone tried to um give a pet a Viking funeral and caused <laughs> Quite a substantial fire! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so that didn't go to plan. And also, I think someone tried to uh, give their their friend a, a Viking funeral. And the, I think what people don't get with the idea of this is, it it the heat required awful. to to burn a human body is so much higher than you really anticipate, like cremation mm-hmm. cremation than cremation furnaces reach really extreme temperatures like you say to to be able to just turn bone to powder so if you put let's say your mate on a dinghy with a bit of straw (laughs) under him he's not going to burn in some big elaborate pyre you know you'd have to do a lot of research into exactly what types of dry twigs and what sort of boat you'll need because otherwise you'll just have quite a charred body Washing up downstream, and there'll be a murder inquiry. <laughs> so, God, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think for all of the loveliness of, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to go out like a, uh, you know, a Viking warrior, and you'll go up to Valhalla, and everything will be wonderful. Right, right. Or your mates will get charged for wasting police time, and there'll be a big inquiry. <laughs> you know, but it's a nice idea.
1: It's a valid point <laughs> that I think I will bring up at the dinner table tonight.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so one. Among these these other things, the stuff that you look into, like we talked about briefly before the show, is you know the spiritualism and especially the spiritualist, the historical <laughs> spiritualism that Jeez. happened back in the day. I would love to talk about that more, and mm-hmm. probably maybe we can talk you into having a conversation again later about that because that's fascinating. I'd love to hear it from the Gothic always. literature, the historical context. That's fascinating, um, but. Uh, one qu- uh, one big question is, um, what do you think, I mean, you write this blog, you present these ideas, these stories, what is the big thrust for you to share this? What is it that you want people to, to understand about death and these other mm, topics that they're not understanding right now?
2: I think the, the main thing, especially when I write about cemeteries or if I write about um, any of the the burial cards I have, or any of the mourning pieces I have, is that death is about people, and death is about sentimentality, and it's in it's interesting, for starters. So if you find uh, a memorial card with within, because I do a lot of talks for um, like family history groups and things like that, I, I really want to get across that not, none of this is scary or silly or also should be exploited, but it's. Inherently interesting and it's inherently human. Mm-hmm. And I, if I can get people interested in something that they thought was quite mundane, like a burial card, and then be able to say to them, okay, well, let's talk about the card. So the card is like this design and it was produced by this person. And this symbolism means, you know, because <laughs> it's it's got the hourglass on it, that means life is fleeting. Because it's got, you know, a, a wreath on it, that's triumph over death. But also, let's look at the person, let's look into the censuses. And let's really track that person down through the records that remain Mm -hmm. and and present their life or everything i can find on it within Mm -hmm. the context of their time which is something i really enjoy doing so i think if if people can slightly adjust their mindset i mean my whole blog isn't serious i crack jokes all the time through it you know i've got um, my podcast came out the other day on my patreon about um safety coffins And I'm just talking about how everyone was just dead jack in the boxes if any of these (laughs) patents were ever put into action. So it's kind of let's look back at history, but let's not make it really exclusive. Let's not make it this standoffish sort of thing. Yeah, not everything has to be so dry and so fenced off just for very, you know, very twee academics with twiddly mustaches. You know, this is for everyone and it's interesting and it's important and it can be fun. I think that's the main thing as well, is that we can laugh at death, laughing at death and laughing at creepy, spooky things is healthy and should be encouraged, I think.
1: I think that was the driver behind my um, horror movie challenge and why I think people are fascinated with horror movies because while these topics are taboo, there's no denying that the horror film is this huge genre because people are fascinated by something they don't understand. And horror movies are sort of expressions of that horror and, and humor and, and things of that nature. And so um, that's um, maybe a safe way for us to spend an hour and a half to two hours like connecting with the idea of death. Mm. We get a little scared, we laugh, and then you know you can turn the VCR off, turn the TV. Did I say VCR? VCR. Oh my oh.
2: God. You can <laughs> yeah. do, I've got one just over there. So. Well, you know, <laughs> <I'm> very <modern. laughs> right? Right. Um. but then, you know, you get
1: to turn it off and it's, it's, it's safely within this realm yeah. of fiction, you know, and I think that's why ghost stories continue to be so popular and, you know, things
2: of that nature.
0: Do you have any personal g- ghost stories?
2: Do I have any? I, I do. I have my one ghost story.
0: Which, Please share um, it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it. It always makes me feel a bit uncomfortable because I know there'll be people watching who go, oh. Oh, she's insane okay that's fine
0: <laughs> i'm used to that it's, it's <laughs> to be
1: fair we've all told a ghost story at least once yeah. on this podcast so people know what they're getting into here
0: also the name of the show
2: exactly the it's very fitting said, it's, it's very very fitting yeah <laughs> um well my ghost story i've always got to say if if it could be disproved to me if someone could explain oh of, of course you saw this because of x y and z that was happening at the time i would be perfectly happy to accept that it was all a hallucination and I'll carry on with just as much enthusiasm for ghost stories and dead things as I did before but my my main interaction interaction with ghosts was <laughs> I was um staying at my sister's house which was just a really standard post-war semi-detached house near Grimsby and there were it, it built up this activity within the house because they ultimately ended up moving because of it they moved from the bedroom upstairs and moved on to a, a mattress in the living room because it just got so too extreme they couldn't oh bear gosh. to live there yeah um, but it started with um footsteps up and down uh up and down the stairs in the house at night when no one was there and the footsteps would go up and down the stairs but then they'd come onto the landing and they'd do a circuit for a few hours yeah. and it was it wasn't soft footsteps or you know anything you could misconstrue it was like a fully grown bloke was walking up and down and that's when you sort of think okay you were in bed you were tired but also my sister had a dog at the time who would sit at the top of the stairs for hours every night and watch something move about so I think Mm. it's the dog that made me just completely unable to explain it but these footsteps up and down and then when things started getting I used to stay over quite a bit and things started getting more extreme I saw a man in the corner of my bedroom in in a blue suit, and I I just couldn't move. There was a horrible burning smell as well, not like not like burning flesh or anything like that, but like a acrid sort of burning smell. And then yes. when I sort of just really hemmed myself in my bed, um, I felt sort of breath beside my face, and then mm. that was the only time I'd, I'd seen it. But in other instances, my my sister would never go to the bathroom on her own. She absolutely refused to. So when I went with her that was because I used to stand outside the door and then we'd both go downstairs together but she saw a man dead in the bath in that and it was the same man apparently Mm. we found out afterwards we both told my mother what we'd seen and it matched up precisely and it appeared to be someone who had died um, in the house a few years before who's quite a young man he was probably in his 40s you know um that was my my ghost story really my sister got it a lot worse because i think things started getting moved about and quite horrible things started happening so luckily just being a visitor i only got to to see see something whatever that may be Mm. really on that one occasion but the even seeing that it's the footsteps that creep me out still even thinking about it because i think you can explain away what you see a lot of the times and you can explain things with pareidolia and so forth but when you're hearing something and you're watching something else interact with it, that's scary. Because yeah. they're interacting yeah. with something that you can't see. And that that was, that did me, mm. yeah.
1: I've, I've had a similar experience with a burning smell that was so strong and so sudden. And I, you know, you follow it around trying to find the source. Like is something, did the dog leave something? Is something going on? And I remember coming up to the window and smelling this extremely strong smell coming from the window. And I thought, oh, something outside is, go- is on fire. or The chemical factory down the road is burning. Something's going on. So I go outside to see if I can smell the smell outdoors. Clean air, clean night air. And then right up against my window is this horrible acrid burning smell. And um, within a few minutes of like, I woke my husband up from a sleep and I'm like, do you smell this? And he's like, yeah, I smell it. Within a few minutes, it the smell completely evaporated and went away. And I've had like um, olfactory, um, strange olfactory experiences that like, I involved another person. I'm like, am I having a stroke or do you smell this? Mm. He's like, no, 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 I smell it. And I'm like, okay, so I'm not having a stroke. This is actually happening. And then the minute we're sitting there sort of discussing what might be going on um the smell evaporates. I remember going the next morning and holding the curtains up to my nose and being like do the curtains still stink of this and and it didn't and it's hard for me to imagine that such a pungent aroma would not somehow be left behind on the fabric of of the curtains. It was that it was right there against the window and my house was built in 1990 so and it's like the same family lived in here for years before we moved into it. So like the idea that something built in 1990 is going to have like a haunting to it is uh, a little dubious to me, but I've had like strange olfactory experiences as well that were just unexplainable. Mm.
0: So one, one thing is we we talked about spiritualism just a little bit. Uh, And I don't know if you know this, um, Jessica is actually a very special type of spiritualist. She has certain oh. <laughs> deduction powers. And so the first question I have for you is, do they make good pizza in England or is that not a thing there?
2: We have pizza. We've got that we far. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because I asked someone, I forget where it was, and I asked them about pizza and they were like, "They the way they described it was so horrifying to me that I was like, they don't do that. Like, I think it was in um, Mexico. Yeah, he was, was in Mexico and someone gave him a pizza and it was, maybe the most disgusting looking pizza he ever I've ever seen he just sent me a picture so I'm just like let me make sure they do it right in England
2: yeah, no you're good obviously okay there are, there are many places where you can obtain pizza of okay, different good. varieties you can get deep pan you can get crispy oh
0: good you can get
2: they're right healthy they're right next <laughs> to Italy too you yeah, think.
0: yeah. But, but there's some place I'm just saying I've seen some some things and I just need to make sure that you have good pizza there before I ask you If you were to order a pizza right now, what toppings would you get? And Jessica will do a reading based on your pizza. Yes.
2: Right. The pizza reading. You fucking beat me, Jessica. You cannot beat
0: me.
2: (laughs) I will go for... We'll go for a standard base. We'll go quite thin. Mm -hmm. And we'll go for mozzarella Mm -hmm. and roasted peppers with Mm -hmm. chili pesto. And a little bit of rocket... So I look like I'm healthy. Or whatever okay. you call rocket in America.
1: I, don't I think we call, I think it's arugula. You're
2: arugula. Talking referring to a lettuce, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. Arugula, was I was like, I'm a gardener, so <laughs> I know. And I put rockets on it, and I just blast it
0: off. <laughs> that sounds very American.
2: It does, really. Yeah, it's one thing we should have <laughs> switched around the other way. So what this comes from
1: is, um, I made a cheeky little Twitter post one time that said, uh, your pizza order tells me everything I need to know about you. Mm -hmm. And really it was just an opportunity for people to tell me what they get on their pizza because people Mm -hmm. love to talk about themselves and it's a great way to get like a big post going on. And so ever since then, Cam is (laughs) like, oh really? I'm going to hold you to this. (laughs) He (laughs) makes me do some kind of like, um, pizza type reading for every guest we have on the program now. So last time I beat him by just reading a random astrological reading off of the internet, but replacing every you with pizza. Mm -hmm. And so he's (laughs) trying, what he's trying to do is just basically make me uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. So today's pizza reading is that um, you managed, and this is literally just, what this says. It's oddly always really accurate. Um, You manage to remain in shape by eating wisely. You will be able to ease a tight situation on the financial front by cutting corners. Pizzas are round typically, so that's actually good. Um, Professionally, you are bound to do well. Congratulations on your PhD, my lady. And um, this trend is increasing for both uh, professional and academic fronts, which I think lettuce on pizza is actually like excellent. And I've had so many good pizzas with like salad toppings mm-hmm. on top of them. So, you know, I know there are a lot of pizza purists who are like, you know, anything that makes a pizza like three-dimensional in any way is like not proper pizza. But um, I actually really enjoy the salad pizzas. I think that you have um, very uh, defined and uh, exotic taste. So that's what I will <laughs> about. And yeah, so yeah, it's just...
0: I, I uh, Never heard arugula called a rocket before. Like, I'm taking yeah. this with me and I'm going oh, to didn't say
2: a, a, a rocket. It's just right. rocket. Rocket. Yeah. Would you like some <laughs> rockets with your pizza? Yes, I would. I'm healthy and cook corners financially. <laughs> <Yes>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, pizzas are round. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, uh, my uh, my favorite question is uh, we do, it's, it's funny talking about this in the realm of death and the dark kind of things. Um, but right now we are living in a time, and I'm sure this is true of all time, but it seems particularly poignant that we are living in a time where people feel hopeless for different mm. reasons. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are happening globally, locally, etc., that are huge bummers. And so I do like to try to find the hopeful, the hope in the situation. So my question for you is it, it, it can be in any subsect of your life it can be very personal it can be global whatever what do you see happening right now what is something in your life that is giving you hope that is giving you the silver lining and the motivation to move forward
2: oh i think i have to go for something just really basic and okay. saccharine and sweet but um at, last year for my birthday, after 30 years of, of desperately wanting, I finally got a dog. Oh, and it, It's such a, a silly thing because I, I am, I'm working really hard on my career. I'm, I'm working relentlessly on trying to make Burials and Beyond something really big. But I think because I work alone so much, like I work from home, uh, I'm a freelancer. Yes. So to have a little constant, like a, a mad, very bitey little constant, <laughs> but to have that little pal. Uh, this whole year has just been wonderful she keeps me she keeps me in a routine every day and she keeps me looking after someone else and being very receptive to someone else's needs yeah. you know so it's and I, I know it's it's nothing particularly globally impactful but certainly yeah. for myself having a little furry pal when i'm I've had a bad day with work or if I've had a bad day with something else she'll still be there she'll still want to lick <laughs> my skin off. And she'll still, you know, she'll still wake me up in the middle of the night wanting some beef. So, Um, you know, it's, I'd say my tiny, fluffy, angry dog. What is her name (laughs) and what kind of dog is she? (laughs) She's called Baffles. Okay, I like it. (laughs) (laughs) And um, she's a mix between a Pomeranian and a Maltese. Oh, a little tiny. She's the size of a shoebox and she's just white fluff. (laughs) they are the smaller
1: (laughs) the smaller they are the more like evil and hell-sent they tend to be and so yeah like the big dogs are all lovey-dovey and then the little ones are like i will eat you (laughs) yeah
2: Yeah, she thinks she's an alsatian but she's she's lovely she's so loving that's good
0: Well, yeah, I'm
1: a big dog person. So I think that's an excellent, um, sort of like little bit of hope. It doesn't, you know, uh, when we ask that question, we always like to emphasize that it can be a personal thing. Um, it doesn't have to be some like grand global. Oh, well they have golden rice in India or, you know, something like that. Like if it's just something that gives you hope, that's, you know, a person who is on, you know, looking for something might think, you know, maybe I ought to get a dog and that might improve their life. And so mm-hmm. being a personal thing is totally okay.
0: Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on our show, Kate. I have mm-hmm. enjoyed it immensely. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if you'll, you'll want to, to hang out with us anymore, but I do want to talk spiritualism at some point. Always, always. The, the history oh, for that. I want to do that. And I may talk you into coming back earlier than I thought I would, but. Not that I didn't think I would, but, you know, Americans in their rudeness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I do think I, I, I want to probably talk to you sooner rather than later. Um, but thank you so much. I think what you're doing is fascinating. I think that these little – one of the things that Jessica loves and something that I've kind of found a love for as well is finding the – sublime that's within the little things like when she learned she told us about how why spoons are shaped the way that they are and why we have them the way that they are
1: it's really fascinating spoons are fascinating you guys you don't know look into spoons (laughs) there's a deep history there
0: but that's that's what you do like the i immensely enjoyed reading about the the polar bear mascot and how, how there's one left and they had to do you got to take a look at it and why they chose this instead of the, what, what was it? It was called Fox Mints. Why didn't they choose an Arctic Fox? Like of all things, they're like, let's go with a polar bear. Your name yeah. is Fox. You're making mints. Like there, there are ways to do do this smarter, but it's fascinating to me. So I, uh, I appreciate you coming on. I have mm. enjoyed it. I'm sure that the nodding that Jessica's doing is her agreeing with me, which yeah. is always nice when women <laughs> agree with me. Um, but what I was going to, if if people want to find you, you know, you're on, we know you're on Twitter at Burials Beyond. You mm-hmm. have your website, um, burialsandbeyond.com. You also mm-hmm. have a Patreon, which I believe I that's where all your podcast stuff is.
2: Yeah. I post brand new exclusive content four times a week. So that's uh, podcasts, ah. videos, brand new articles. I've put up guides as to how to read a cemetery. So if you go, you can do You can look at the symbolism and know things like that. I discuss weird and wonderful things in burial. I do a lot of ghosty things. I do mediums where I dress up as the mediums. And I give you little (laughs) insights into weird jobs that I get, like when I was paid to pretend to be a Victorian medium for the day. And I take you along with me. And it's, it's super cheap. I think it's like 70 cents a month. To support
1: the research, there. I didn't know about that. I'm so excited! Oh my
2: gosh! (laughs) Do do come along. It is relentless madness. I love it. Well, uh,
0: at this point, I am probably going to start shilling our own stuff and what's coming in the future. Um, If you want to stick out and hang out while I do that, you're more than welcome to. If you want to jump off, feel free to do that as well. But we appreciate you. It's been lovely. You're a lovely person in and out. And I hope we get to talk again soon. So oh,
2: thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'll lurk for a bit then, but thank okay. you. <laughs> <laughs> I okay. So. So,
0: so with that um, exciting stuff, the 100 Nights of Horror starts this Friday. We're kicking it off with the Netflix original movie, The Ritual, which was my favorite movie of the challenge last year. I Have you seen The Ritual, Kate?
2: I don't think so. I've seen a film called The Ritual, but not a Netflix one.
0: It's it's on Netflix. I think it, I think it was in it was put out in 2017. Maybe mm-hmm. it's excellent. It's very Norse and kind of um, Lovecraftian in its horror, which I appreciate. Um, but that's going to be coming up. Um, we're starting that this Friday, uh, right before our outro for this week. I will play our little video that shows every movie that Jessica and I picked out, all 100 of them. We'll do that. Um, Beyond that, if you want to find me on Twitter, I am locked down currently on Twitter. I have a lock on my account because I'm trying to get a job. And sometimes when you talk about things, people don't like that. So I'm just, you know, keeping it safe. If you want to follow me on Twitter, that's at Cam Harless. If you'd like to follow Jessica, that is at Soup Canarchist. If you want to, those of you who are listening right this second, as we're sitting here with Kate, this is on Rockfin. Typically, we we do Rockfin and YouTube at the same time. But since this is noon and we want to put it at our normal time, everyone who has a Rockfin subscription is actually watching it right now. And so if you want to watch things that are a little off the beaten path or on a different day or early, join Rockfin. You'll get to see it before anyone else, and it's a lot more fun that way. Uh, we also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash themadones. We have tw- – uh, already did Twitter – um YouTube. if you want a t-shirt, I think they're pretty cool. Um, I need to get your address, Kate, because I'm going to send you one of our t-shirts. Ooh, um I've got to figure it out because I need to make sure I have it on the the uk store first. I'm gonna send you one. So I'll need to get some address that you feel comfortable sending me. I'm not a creep <laughs> and I'm in America. Um but if you want one, we are the mad slash store um and we're also on odyssey youtube if you want to listen to it it's on every podcatcher and let's see is that it
1: if you're watching on youtube please hit like and subscribe so that we can get bumped up in the algorithm and other people can come watch our very interesting guests so
0: so with that we're done um as (laughs) always i say as always i've been mixing up my my phrase that I say on the way out, but as always, uh, don't get arrested for doing stupid stuff. I forgot to mention who's coming up. So that's all I need to do is next week. We have Chris Amidon. Uh, he is a man who worked in the, uh, psychiatric field and feels like psychiatry is not a great thing. And it's very interesting to hear that from someone who isn't a Scientologist. So we're going to be talking about that next week. Then we have a, um, I never know what's going on. Yeah. Then, then after that, we have Harley coming on. We're going to talk cryptids. And then we have right after that, we have Chris Baker from Rick, uh, from Inc 180. And he is a man who was a tattoo artist and decided that instead of just tattooing for money, he tattoos off um, human trafficking tattoos that women have from their time being trafficked. That's going to be fascinating. And then finally, uh, Kim Shang's is going to come on and we're going to talk about stoicism and a little bit more philosophy. So, sorry for for bringing you back like that Kate, but I just I just wanted to see your face one more time. With that, <laughs> here's the outro.